You're listening to Knowing Faith, a podcast of Training the Church. Uh, this is JT English, and uh, this is Kyle Worley, and this is Jen Wilkin. <laughs> Me, Jen Wilkin. <laughs> what if we just did? What if we all pretended to be each other for a whole episode? How would I pretend to be you? What would I do? I would say I don't think you could be that smart. I would say wrong things. Oh my, oh my gosh! <laughs> it took You're you a second. It took human. you a second to even think about it. Whatever. On today's episode, uh, wait, are we recording? Yeah, we are. Uh, okay. Always, JT. <laughs> always. That's the danger of being in this sound booth. On today's episode, we're talking about hot tongues. You like that title, Jen? I hate it. Well, it's there. Um, <laughs> uh, we're talking about hot tongues in Acts chapter two. Hope you enjoy the discussion. Um, okay. Hey, uh, quick question. Uh, how do you guys feel about spicy foods? Are you pro spicy? Not pro spicy. Are you, you like it spicy? No. I love spicy food. Really? Love it. When I was a kid, my dad subscribed to a magazine called Mojada Mobetta. (laughs) (laughs) I'm serious. There's a whole magazine devoted to that. Yeah. Yeah. And you would buy like (laughs) collections of sauce and salsa that wasn't rated based upon like the taste or the flavor but on how many Scovilles it had. Like it was, wow, this has 5,000, this has 2,000. Like it wasn't like this is flavored like Hatch or mm-hmm. whatever, mm-hmm. Habanero. I it, think that's your, your new Twitter bio is Mojada Mobetta. <laughs> I wonder if it's still a thing. Uh, yeah, why don't we Google it real quick? <laughs> we'll do that uh, off the chart. Have you guys heard about how they, um, you know how like there's barnacles, there's like a, what is it? What's the barnacle that sticks to people's boats and it's polluting all of the, oh, the zebra mussel. Do you know about this? No. Nope. <laughs> this is going to tie in. Don't worry. But the, so zebra mussels are like a big problem. And okay. if you put your boat in the zebra mussel contaminated lake and then you take it to another lake, it carries zebra mussels with it. And and then also just generally barnacle buildup on boats. Big problem. Did you hear that? Tongue twister I just said? Barnacle no. buildup barnacle. on boats? Oh, that is incredible. Uh, that was just spontaneous. Anyway. And you said big. Barnacle buildup uh, on boats is perfect. a big problem. Uh, yeah. Yeah, big bust, I should have said. Mojada Mobetta is still uh, a thing. Anyway, okay. so there was so, so, no, listen, this is important information for all of the boaters okay. out there. Mm. So they, so this company developed a paint that they put, I don't know if it's habaneros, but whatever the hottest peppers are. Okay, ghost peppers. They grind them up and they put them in the paint because then the barnacles will not stick to the boat because the boat is too spicy. Oh my gosh. Really? Yes. There it is. Gosh. Google that. And also would prevent people from licking your boat. That is another benefit. Yeah. So, Mo- <laughs> guys, Mojada Mo Better. Zebra mussels. Yeah, spicy zebra mussels. Spicy zebra mussels. JT is showing me inappropriate hot sauce names from the Mojada Mo Better website. I didn't name them. It's just like on the website. Oh, they have a website. Oh, yeah. Well, it's actually primarily a mail order. It's bold of you to Google that. Oh, I know, right? I was a little worried about that. Yeah. But I think I'm going to be okay. They've got some great stuff here. You got, I mean, what do you want? Texas gunpowder, jalapeno powder? Nope. Uh, Wait, you didn't answer. You, no. Do you like spicy food? I mean, I like a little bit. I've had to adapt because um, Mr. Jeff Wilkin loves spicy food. Really? I'm pretty sure he's had some damage to his taste buds that makes him think things are less spicy than they are. Really? So he's got like high tolerance. Yeah. Wow. Or okay. he's defective. They have a Halloween candy <laughs> called the Toe of Satan. 
candy never tasted so scary. No, not Cook today. Now. <laughs> not today. Not today, <laughs> Satan. Not today, Toe of Satan. Satan's not today. Uh, well, we're talking about spicy food because the episode today is titled Hot Tongues. I, I object to the title. I know you do, but here's the deal. Like, I have very few spiritual gifts and clickbait headlines. <laughs> Are one of them. So, like, <laughs> I just feel like I'm, I'm not serving the church That's effectively true. if I don't give these. I, I, mean, agree, I agree with that assessment. And I, I honed that practice for the record while trafficking through two of the most boring books in the Bible, First and Second Samuel. You're the worst, Kyle. Those <laughs> books were riveting. <laughs> So, I mean, it's really, you, you've you created this monster because I didn't want to title a podcast episode the, the 17th First Samuel episode. <sighs> <laughs> episode 17 of First Samuel. <clears throat> Let down. Um, hey, we're glad that you're with us. I'm glad to be in here with you guys. I love hanging out with you guys. Hey, good to be back. It's yeah, good to see it's you. It's good to see you guys. It is good to see you. Um, okay, so today we're talking about Acts. Why Acts? Why are we talking about Acts on the podcast this season? We're going through it in the Bible studies, men's and women's Bible study. Everybody's going through it together. Men and women's Bible study. You started yesterday. How'd it go? It was great. Yeah. It was really fun. It, everybody was really, really excited. And I, I will admit that probably some of the excitement was related to the fact that we're done with first and second Samuel. <laughs> but um, attendance I, spiked. People yeah, really no, excited. I'm not kidding. When we do a, a New Testament study, and it's, you know, I mean, Acts only has 28 chapters, and what was first and second 29 Samuel? 29 chapters, like, right? Right. I'm going to do that the whole year. Just get ready. So. But like first and second Samuel was 55, I think, mm, chapters. Yeah. And so just, the, like just the amount, you know, of text that we'll be going through each week is, is smaller, yeah. and that, that opens up a lot of opportunities. It's cool. Yeah. I love that. They were pumped. I we had, that. oh, this is cool. Yeah. Um, in the evening women's study in Flower Mound, we have um, 26 middle school and high school girls who are going through. So it's That's a, incredible. It's a record that high really for us. Incredible. Yeah. That's it's incredible. really, really cool. So like what we've seen is over time, you know, the ones who start in the eighth grade, they just keep coming back. That's amazing. Yeah. It's really that. cool. Love that. So we're talking about Acts because it kind of tracks with the men and women's Bible study. Um, at the Village Church mm -hmm. this year, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Um, but what is Acts? Like, what what is it? It's a book of the Bible. Thank you, JT. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> yeah, uh, written by Luke. Okay. Mm -hmm. So Luke uh, writes two books. He writes the Gospel of Luke and he writes Acts and he just writes them as accounts of what God was doing in these days through Jesus and then eventually through Jesus and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit here in Acts. And so last, the last time we talked about this, we talked about... Uh, Luke writing to this guy, Theophilus, yep. really just to give a faithful account and say, hey, yep. here are the things that, that were heard, said, and done by Jesus just so that we can give a faithful according to what we know he did. Yeah. Well, and he says that it's written to give them assurance. Mm -hmm. Right. Like, yes. Or to give Theophilus assurance. Yeah. And I think that's a significant point that's often not talked about enough. When we read the book of Acts, we should read it looking for it to do what Luke intended for it to do. And it's meant to give assurance. So what kind of assurances? That's the kind of thing we should be looking for as That's we read. Um, just, uh, just for the listener, because I find that this is a common misunderstanding with the books of the Bible and their flow. Um, is is uh, the fact that Acts is after John in the New Testament, does that mean that John wrote his book before Acts was written? It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that. No. Right. So, that, so can you the, clarify that? Because you made it sound like you don't know the proper order of the canon. That's great. Well, I know the proper order of the canon. You meant I dating of writing. Yes. Yeah. I do know which order they come in in the Bible. <laughs> but I find that Matthew, some people, Mark, John, Luke. Like I'm walking with a new believer, and um, it's very easy for him right now yeah. to be like, "Oh, this, these just flow chronologically." So when I told him Acts is the second, essentially Luke's second volume, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's like a continuation of the story. He was like, "Well, why did Luke wait?" 
to write it. While John wrote well, his. While John wrote his. Yeah. It was like there was one pen in the room, you know, and that yeah. just, Matthew yeah. would write his first and then right. so on and so forth. Um, and uh, that, I think it's a very reasonable assumption. Yeah, sure. Uh, but l- because Acts is really functioning self-consciously as like a volume too, right? Oh, yeah. Luke Acts should be treated as a unit. Yes. Yeah. You can tell in the opening lines of Acts that Luke is assuming that you have read the gospel mm-hmm. of Luke sure. first. Yeah. That yeah. you've probably just set it down and picked this up. Right. Mm-hmm. So today we're jumping into Acts 2, which is the day of Pentecost mm-hmm. with hot tongues. Hot tongues. Hot tongues. What, uh, what is the day of Pentecost? Just broadly. Like, I know we're about to get into the text where we're going to hear about it. But if you were just saying like a, this is the snapshot of the day of Pentecost, so what is it? If you think about it, you see that P-E-N-T-E at the beginning of the word, and that is um, means 50th. That means it's the 50th day after uh, Passover. And so this is just a feast that happened 50 days after Passover. And I think that when I was growing up, I didn't connect that Pentecost was something that existed prior to mm. this story that we see in Acts. I was mm. that unfamiliar with the Old Testament practices. Mm-hmm. And so I thought Pentecost happened in Acts. I didn't realize that what had happened was that the Spirit had uh, manifested in this particular way on an existing feast date that was familiar to the Jewish community. It was a, just part of their regular rhythm of what they did. Right. And uh, I think... That's fascinating because you're right, especially when we encounter because you don't you don't get much on Pentecost right. in the Bible storyline until here, right? Right. Not a lot of discussion. I mean, it's it's it shows up in the Old Testament right. quite a bit, but right. you don't get a lot of you know discussion. In, of- our, in our kind of in the Christian imagination, it's mm-hmm. like for most people, Pentecost is this, mm-hmm. right? Like it happens mm-hmm. this. And right. it's, like, it's like the name of that day yeah. of the Holy Spirit falling. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things that has been fascinating to me as I've been going through Acts uh, chapter 2, just kind of in preparation for today, was connecting it. And this, again, comes from a lack of Old Testament understanding for me, but connecting the outpouring of the Spirit, which was prophesied in Joel, mm-hmm. to yeah. be a part of the restoration of Israel. That's right. Yeah. Like yeah. that Israel was going to be restored right. and that a significant part of the people of God's restoration was this falling of the Holy mm-hmm. Spirit. I think a, a lot of times with Pentecost, you cut right to the chase. Well, the probably the application being, okay, the Spirit has fallen. There was a missionary outpouring. Mm-hmm. And because the Spirit has fallen, we need the Spirit. Like that's kind of how you go real quick. Mm-hmm. But, but for the people of God, they've been waiting for this prophetic outpouring yeah. of the Spirit. And Joel had promised that it would mm-hmm. happen and that it would be a sign of Israel's restoration. That's right. Um, and that's fascinating. It really is. Um, because uh, I think it's easy with all of the push for Gentiles who read Acts for us to connect specifically with the Gentile application mm-hmm. of what kind of the trajectory of Acts. But this is an area where I've just felt like I've been underdeveloped. It really ties time. it to the biblical storyline exactly. of, of the whole Old Testament. Yeah. And, and what we've, we've said this so many times on the podcast, so it's, but I think it bears repeating one of the main storylines of the Bible is God's presence with his people. Mm-hmm. And this is that fulfillment, the restoration of, uh, you know, Peter, interesting, late, later says that we're still in exile. Right. Like there's a sense that the exile continues until Jesus returns. Mm-hmm. But this is a partial fulfillment of a promise and assurance and a seal that one day exile will be completely over. And until then, God, by the Spirit, is keeping us, holding us, and preserving us by his presence That's good. and power. That's good. Real quick question. When people say, uh, uh, God, would you pour out the Holy Spirit? Just kind of like casually. Mm-hmm. Do, do, does that ever kind of chafe against your sensibilities? Well, I think we know what they mean. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, it does, I don't think I chafe against it, uh-huh. but I think it is important that we say he already did. Right, right, right. Yeah. 
Because he has. He has. Right. And, and, like, he, <laughs> <laughs> I and, wish and, you guys could see their faces right now. I love watching the two of them <laughs> stare at each other. Like, you get, you're going to say it, it right? <laughs> We were waiting for you to say it. Yeah, I was nope, for you. I'm just here to watch. No, I, I like to I like to see uh, JT and I as one of us is going to cannonball into the calm pool at some point. Um, and the question is who? Um, but but yeah, I think sometimes for me when I hear it, I'm like, okay, I, I understand what you're saying. Like you want the you want the power of the spirit to characterize what's happening here. But Acts two is the story of, of God saying that God did it. of God pouring out the spirit, <laughs> right? right? Yeah, and it's almost like, are you saying like asking for it yes. is to neglect that he already has? Yeah, well, I mean, especially because we pretty much neglect the day of Pentecost in our typical church calendars. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's. I've not thought of it this way before. This is me genuinely processing out loud. Mm-hmm. Is it almost like saying, "Jesus, come die on the cross for our sins"? Right. It's like no, no, no. That was an act in salvation history that already happened. Yeah, the Son has already mm-hmm. done this, and w- that becomes real clear. If we were asking for Jesus to come and do that again, it would be neglecting the a major turning point in the storyline of the Bible. Right. In the same sense, to ask the Spirit to come is to neglect that God has already sent Him and yeah. He's here among us. Yeah. It's more a matter of us help us to recognize that mm-hmm. He's here yeah. than it is for him to not be here and then to be here. Yeah, is that what you're saying? Yeah. Well, that in the that the one uh, time in Scripture where we see a petition for any person of the Godhead to come, it's Jesus. Mm-hmm. Right. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyways. Just well, but that's know. actually a really good, so there's a pretty well-known connection. I don't know. I assume it's well-known. Maybe I shouldn't, between this scene that we see at Pentecost with the pouring out of the Spirit and the, the tongues being given, which I know we're going to get into when we talk a little bit more, but there's this correlation with Babel. Mm-hmm. And um, it's an undoing of what happens at Babel. Yes. And, and, and what is going on at Babel, which ties in with what you just mentioned about, you know, proclaiming basically the name of Christ is, is what the Spirit is here to do, is that at Babel, the builders of the tower say, let us make a name for ourselves. Yes. And so what happens at Pentecost is the proclamation of the name of Christ hmm. um, is poured out yeah. mm-hmm. instead of some building project that elevates the right. name of any yeah. human being. Yeah. yeah, there are more. And rather than being confused through each other's language, they all hear in the same yeah, language. Yeah, they all hear it in a language they can understand. Yeah, I'm getting right. a little head. No, no, no. Sorry. Let's jump in because yeah. I want to get to that. That's all good. Okay, so just to kind of jump jump into Acts two because we're going to hit a few different scenes, kind of in this movie of Acts two. But we'll start with the day of Pentecost. It, says, it arrived. They were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And so just before that, they had been kind of kind of gathered together post ascension, kind of trying to figure out what's what next. Now? Yeah. yeah. You know, they were deciding who it was going to be folded into the apostolic witness mm-hmm. and Jesus had just ascended. <clears throat> and so they're, they're, they're kind of waiting because mm-hmm. Jesus told them, wait. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the spirit falls, comes rushing in like a mighty wind and dividing tongues of fire rest upon them. Why, why these tongues of fire? Why fire as a motif? Yeah, well, fire is a is a massive theme throughout the canon about God's presence with His people. Mm-hmm. So you could, uh, you've got uh, Him meeting Abraham yep. uh, as a as a as a uh, pot and fire, yes. pillar of fire. Then you have uh, the burning bush. Yeah. Then you have 
uh, the pillar of fire in, in the Exodus account. Right. So fire is con- uh, Deuteronomy. Our God is a consuming fire, right. Mm-hmm. right? So you have this continual theme of fire manifesting God's presence with His people. Yeah. And then tongues, I think, is what we were just talking about there. This is a reverse babble. This is mm. that God's speech is going to be made known, so that the name of Christ will be proclaimed yeah. to God's people. Yeah. So the tongue, the tongues of fire are one. The fire motif is connecting to a larger picture, much larger, going mm-hmm. all the way back to. Abraham, yeah, of uh, God's presence with His people, and and the tongue imagery there, and then they at the kind of expression of that, which is verbal in nature, mm-hmm. um, uh, is connecting with this this larger theme of a people who once were confused in tongue now have been given clarity in tongue. That's right. Mm-hmm. When it comes to their mm-hmm. testimony. Yeah. I think there's also a parallel here to Sinai because you see, hmm. in fact, if you look at the language, it's it's very similar to the descriptions that you hear in, in Exodus 19, where you can tell that um, Luke is sort of searching for the right way to describe it. He doesn't say the sound of a mighty rushing wind. He says a sound like a hmm. mighty rushing wind. And he doesn't say tongues of fire appeared over their heads. He says divided tongues as of fire. He's trying to find um, human language to describe something that he's <coughs> having trouble describing. Mm. And just as God descends in smoke and fire on top of Mount Sinai, and then there is a glorious proclamation of the nature and character of God, um, we're going to see a descent, but now onto these individuals and a glorious proclamation of the nature and character of God. Yeah. Yeah. So and, he's been, again, referencing all of the, that whole Old Testament, the, the presence of God, because Luke is very concerned with connecting Old Testament to New Testament yes. for his readers. Yeah. And so the tongues of fire are, uh, there's this, there's this rushing wind, Mm -hmm. tongues of fire rest upon them. uh, And then it says, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. So who's the Holy Spirit? I mean, the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. He is God and Lord worthy of worship, adoration, praise. Often I think we think of the Holy Spirit and Jen and I were talking about Mm -hmm. this yesterday. We improperly think of the spirit as an it or a force or a power, uh, is he forceful? Yes. Is he powerful? Yes. But he is not an it. He is a he. He is right. he is God and Lord. The same way we would think of the Father as a person and the Son as a person. The Holy Spirit is a person meant for relationship, mm-hmm. intimacy, uh, fellowship, communion. And when we see the Holy Spirit descending upon uh, his people here, like you've already said, in terms of the biblical theological scope, this is a restoration of, of what God is doing, but it's also a picture of what the son in the first act of his intention was to go up into the heavens and pour out his presence everywhere mm. among his people. Mm-hmm. And so this is going to come up later when we get into, into Peter's sermon here, but this is a major fulfillment of what we see in Psalm 110 mm-hmm. of, you know, David, and then Jesus talks about this to the Pharisees, you know, Psalm 110 is, uh, the Lord says to my Lord, who sits at, at your right hand? And the question that Jesus asks the Pharisees is, well, who's David's Lord if David's son is supposed to be the Messiah? It's this really kind of confusing and perplexing question for them is, how could David's son also be somebody that David calls Lord? And so this picture, and again, I I know we'll get to it when we get to Peter's sermon, and I want to spend some time there, is a massive claim. Number one of the deity of Christ Mm. is he can actually go up into the presence of the Father and stay there forever. Why? Because he is God himself. Right. And he is also the one who can give us the presence of God perpetually 
in the Holy Spirit. So when we think of the Holy Spirit, we have to connect it to the work of the Son. Right. Because what the Son is doing is giving us his presence, Christ in us, the hope of glory, in the person of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Yes. Do you ever get stuck wondering how to study a Bible passage? The Courage for Life Study Bibles for Women and the Courage for Life Study Bibles for Men have over 1,400 Bible studies. That's a Bible study on every page of Bible text. Access to the Filament Bible app lets you dive even deeper. If you download the app and you scan the page number, you can open up a world of resources, including over 25,000 additional study notes, hundreds of videos, and a full audio Bible. Start discovering at courageforlifebible.com. That's courageforlifebible.com for incredible study notes and an incredible study Bible. We live in a possession and money-obsessed culture, but what does the Bible say about generosity? In his new book, A Short Guide to Gospel Generosity, author Nathan Harris shows us that the answer to our obsession with possessions is turning to the gospel, because only in the gospel can we find the type of life transformation that enables us to turn our focus from ourselves and back to others, to give generously, and to follow in the way of Christ. To learn more about the book, visit GuideToGospelGenerosity.com. That's GuideToGospelGenerosity.com. Yeah, I think one of the things that was convicting to me looking over my history of trying to understand the, the third person of the Trinity was that idea that it's a force, not just that it is a force, but that it is a force that I appropriate and use. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think of the, we, we have a propensity to find ways to make each member of the Trinity utilitarian yes. instead of personal. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, but with the spirit, perhaps even more so than the other. I don't know if it's even more so. It's like Star Wars theology. Yeah, it's Star Wars theology. Well, yeah, well, that and people will talk about it like it's the gas of the Christian life. Right, right. Like the way that you get to, from point A to point B in the Christian life is, well, the, the Holy Spirit. and listen, Well, it's new wine. You right, just drink it. Right, exactly. <laughs> right. And, it's this, and, and, and there's a lot of truth that the Spirit does empower the Word, but the Spirit empowers the Word because the Spirit is God. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So it's, it's easy for us, I think, to miss. And we'll see that here in a few chapters. Right. when we get, we'll, we'll do this in a few episodes. But, but you have a picture of two people lying yes. in God's yeah. presence. Right. And the, the text says, you lied to God yes, mm-hmm. because yeah. you lied to the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And so when you think of, of God, Yahweh, yeah. Father, Son, and Spirit, this isn't some kind of like subordinate God right. or like some kind of servant of the Father and of the Son. He is Lord, yeah. yes. God, King, the creator of all things. Can I, can I ask a, an unrelated question? You're the you host. Can but we got to get to those hot tongues. Okay. <laughs> We're going to get there. Um, this isn't completely unrelated, but it's kind of more of a history of redemption question. Do you guys think that the uh, at what we're seeing here is the first time in the history of redemption where it is the normative experience of God's people to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit? This is a question I wanted you to ask. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, is this, is, in, is indwelling happening for the first time here? In the flow of redemptive history? You know we disagree about this. I know what you're doing. Well, I just... (laughs) (laughs) Nice try. I see you sneaking that in. We've done this conversation like 30 times, and you've always been wrong. Oh, God. (laughs) 
This is not true. I want to hear what Jen has to say. What do you think? Well, I've been thinking about it. I've been trying to... So I I always teach, and I believe it's true, that salvation is the same in the Old Testament as in the New Testament. Amen. Insofar as the Old Testament, the the believers in the Old Testament are looking toward the work of Christ and believers in the New Testament are looking back on it. So I was thinking about this issue of the indwelling of the Spirit and how my understanding of that should be shaped within that same framework. Yes. So I do think that you see, you know, it was we're going to see in the prophecy, um, in those days, my Spirit will be poured out on all people people, sons yes. and daughters. You know, so there, there's something about this that is different, yeah. but also same. Yeah. So if, if salvation is the same in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, I would argue that the, you have to say that peop, the believers in the Old Testament experience the indwelling of the Spirit. That's yeah. not a new thing. But what is new about it in, under the New Covenant? And I would say, similar to the salvation discussion, it's that they now um, will testify to the finished work of Christ, yes. whereas those in the Old Testament testified to the coming work of Christ insofar as they could understand it through the Spirit. So that is a fuller expression of the work of the Spirit. It is a better indwelling Mm -hmm. of the Spirit. Yeah. I agree with that 100%. And I think the word you, that you mentioned there, fullness, fuller, yeah. I think that is what's happening here, is that we're not getting a distinction that the Spirit used to work in this kind right. of way, and now He's going to relate to you in this kind of way, but it's a matter of, not kind, but of degree. Yeah. That there is a fullness now. Well, And uh, Sinclair Ferguson actually has an incredible treatment of this topic in his book, it's just entitled The Holy Spirit. Yeah, I, I don't like that a lot. I don't know what series that that's in, but I know we can put that in the show notes because those exist now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hashtag um, show notes. Hashtag show Thanks, notes. Crystal. Yes. Hashtag praise hands. Yeah. <laughs> or jazz hands. Yeah. yeah. Sure. Wherever you're at. Michael um, Horton's book on the Holy Spirit talks about it too. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Okay. And he, he makes reference to that. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, so, so we're... I think we're on the same page. Yeah. You and I. Yeah. What, what's your problem? Wait, before JT fights with us, uh-huh. I got to make one more connection here. Yeah. I had heard people rumble around about that maybe Luke was one of the authors of Hebrews. Have you heard this? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, so, you know, you hit Peter's argument here about David and he's referencing Psalm 110. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that's straight up Hebrews. That's mm. the whole argument of, you know, you think David is the big deal, right. but how can David be the big deal if this is the way Psalm 110 speaks of him? It's, it's lifted straight out of there. So I was like, that must be where it's coming from. Hmm. But you see, I'm not arguing for or against it, but I'm saying that there is a parallel uh, form of argument that is, this was good, but this is better. And I think that's what you see with the the pouring out of the Spirit of Pentecost is there was a good expression of the Holy Spirit uh, under the old covenant. This is better. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Yes, I agree. Almost wholeheartedly. <laughs> the Holy Spirit is present and working in the Old Testament the same way the Father and Son are. Every act of God is a Trinitarian act. It's not like the Spirit was, you know, watching Sunday NFL football or something like that and just waiting for the Son to mm-hmm. do his thing. And then, kind of like, yes, he was present. He was or active working. Hey, hey, get to your disagreement, please. Well, here's the thing. I'm just grateful that you guys are so honoring the work of the Holy Spirit. I, I wish you would honor his inspiration of the biblical text. <laughs> As well, I, I know exactly where you're going. I don't even have to look at this. I know what you're going to say, but well, let's just read the Bible yeah. and see what, see what the Bible talk has about to say. About with this. you is that what we're talking about? Here? No, no. Oh, okay, John seven <laughs> says this. John seven thirty nine. Now this is what Jesus said about the Spirit, okay. whom those who believed in Him were <laughs> to receive, which suggests to me it hadn't happened yet. But just to make it clear, he continues to say, for as yet the Spirit had not been given. Yeah. Because Jesus was not yet glorified. Okay. I don't know that... <laughs> Kyle. I don't... I, 
<laughs> I don't know that what I said completely contradicts what Jesus just said. It, it certainly doesn't. It certainly doesn't. Uh, and we, we're, we're going to spend too long on this. I can already tell. But, but you're, you're certainly not saying that the Spirit had not been working. You're right. I didn't. Not working, yes. But he had not been given. And, and I'm not saying that. Jesus is saying that. In what way had he not been given, In the Old Testament, JT. we saw that the Spirit fell on Aholiab and Bezalel, right? Mm-hmm. Remember those guys? So had, had, it, had the Spirit not been given at all? I just said that I think the spirit has been working and was not like resting in the old covenant. I think he was, he was active and working. Sure. But it, I don't think it goes far enough to say it was good and then better because Jesus says it had not happened yet. Well, okay. The better had not happened yet. It doesn't say better. It says he had not been given. Okay. okay. Literalist. You know I can't believe I'm reading you, literally. You, oh my gosh, I cannot gosh, believe JT. you of all people are a, a theological reading of the Old Testament would say, <laughs> how are Old Testament participants kept? How are yeah, it, this how is, is an issue by the Trinitarian some, God. Oh this is, my gosh! <laughs> how JT? Okay, how how am I? How am I? How we should is, move on. This is not going to get better. In, it's no, going to get in worse. In what way is my salvation sealed right now? By the Holy Spirit. By the Holy Spirit. How is David's indwelled, salvation right? sealed? By the Holy Spirit, but not by indwelling. Couldn't be. I'm going to yeah, take not, it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay move on. Move the on. Wall. Move on. That was the pen being thrown. Move on. Okay. If you have more interest in that, you can read the right opinion in Sinclair Ferguson's book on the Holy Spirit, or um, you can read Jim Hamilton's work, The Indwelling of the Holy Spirit. See, I knew that, I knew that Jim Hamilton was going to come up on here. And, uh, honestly, I I tried to write a paper against that book. He's in. He's brilliant. I know. And um, so, if you listen to this podcast, Doctor Hamilton, please don't offer to come on and talk to us about it. Because well, I just um, think he takes Jesus's words seriously. Really John seven. Okay. Okay. Tongues, um, tongues are uh, are tongues evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay, yeah. I mean, in this story, tongues are evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit, uh, and the kind of expression of tongues in Acts two is what? What happens? Like, what are the, what is the tongue expression in Acts two? Well, it's important for us to pay attention to repetition when okay. we see repetition in the text. And what we see is in verse six, it says, and at the sound, at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And then we see further down in verse 11, it says, after we have a list of all of the different people who are listening, and it says in verse 11, in our own tongues, we've heard them telling the mighty works of God. Mm. So um, there is plenty of room for discussion about um, tongues that are spiritual or angelic or whatever. Those are discussions that can be had. That's not, I believe, the discussion that is happening here in Acts chapter 2. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. I think that's one of the reasons why in my mind, as far as the spiritual gifts conversation goes, tongues is far less clear to me than prophecy. Mm -hmm. Because what you get in Acts is you get this expression of tongues Mm -hmm. that you then hear very familiar language recycled around in 1 Corinthians, but they sound like two totally different Mm -hmm. things, right? Mm Mm-hmm. This one, it seems to be missiological in nature. Yeah, for sure. Well, Whereas because in, Acts is missiological. Right. You know, like that's that part of it is like, let's look at what's happening here in the context of what Luke is trying to accomplish right. through writing. But this. in 1 Corinthians, it doesn't seem to have that effect at all. Well, it's a di- yeah, I mean, it's a different context for the writing of that epistle. Right. And so, but I think a lot of times people are trying, like if, if you're talking about tongues, they'll be like, well, look, tongues yeah. is an expression of the work of the Holy Spirit. And then they'll go to 1 Corinthians and be like, it's also this, you know, uh, prayer language. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, hold on, because it seems like what is happening in Acts 2 is different than what's happening in 1 Corinthians. Yeah, I right? think so too. Agree. 
Um, so tongues are evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit. And in Acts 2, the way that tongues are communicated is through this missiological lens. And that probably has a lot to do with the narrative arc of what's happening. Can in you Acts. say what you mean when you mean when you say missiological? Yes. That there is a uh, the primary purpose or primary, I don't want to say maybe purpose, but focus. The focus of what's happening in Acts 2 as it pertains to the expression of tongues is that it is for the purpose of telling those who have not heard about mm-hmm. God's mighty acts, God's mighty acts in a way that they can understand. Right. So missiological, that the the goal, the purpose of tongues is to spread the renown of God in a language that is many people yeah. many people can understand. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are the, uh, yeah, so. One of the things, okay. and you might've mentioned this, I was, I was reading the text for a second. One of the big differences between tongues here in Acts 2 and 1 Corinthians is, and I got this from Daryl Bach's commentary, one of them is what he calls kind of a one-step interpretation, like it was another language, you hearing it without need of like a moderator or a go-between. But in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, it's a two-step interpretation where you would need somebody, it wasn't a language they were hearing on their own, you would need somebody to interpret the language for you. Yeah, that is a a big difference. Yeah, it is a big difference. All right, so you move you move through the, this expression. So all of a sudden, people are amazed, they're perplexed, they're saying, what does this mean? And others are saying, hey, they're filled with new wine. Mm-hmm. And then Peter stands up. And Peter certainly is, he is often in the Gospels coming out as the first person to speak. So mm-hmm. this is really not a surprise, is it? That Peter is standing with the 11, it says it lifted up his voice and he addressed them. And he begins to embark on this sermon. What, 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 what does he say in the sermon? Man, it's a good sermon. It's a good sermon. It's a good sermon. One of the things that we need to keep in mind here is that if you're just dealing with, let's say that you had read Luke right before you get to Acts. Mm -hmm. Most of us, when we think about Peter, we're picturing him having his moment of reconciliation on the beach with Jesus. But that is not in the gospel of Luke. Mm -hmm. What you see in Luke is you see Peter deny Jesus. And then the next time we see him, he's sort of absent during the whole crucifixion narrative, as you would expect, because the disciples have scattered. Then the next time you see him is he's the one who runs to the tomb to mm-hmm. see whether to verify whether Jesus is in fact not there. And then the next time Luke speaks of Peter is here. So his story arc for Peter is denies mm-hmm. Christ, mm-hmm. witnesses the risen Christ. We assume that he has been spending time with Jesus during the 40 days in between his um, resurrection and his ascension. And the very first words that leave his lips after that experience are this massive indictment uh, of of Judaism mm-hmm. of the Jews uh, and his testimony of the of the resurrection of Christ yeah and he says a lot here he says a lot he pretty much goes back to the prophets right and starts there and says hey God said that this would happen that I'm gonna he's gonna pour out my spirit on all flesh so he goes back to Joel and then from Joel, he talks about the wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below and that the day of the Lord is going to come and that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Mm-hmm. So he goes from Joel's prophecy to this evangelistic invitation, really, to mm-hmm. see Jesus with the assurance that the day of the Lord is going to come, which uh, day of the Lord is a phrase that's used all throughout the Bible right. to talk about essentially the eschaton or the end of all things. And Joel uses it a lot. Right, Joel and, does. And again, it's kind of connecting what he talks about, the, the spirit being poured out right. on new flesh, and then here this day of the Lord happening in our midst. These are the last days. Right. He's trying to say this Jesus whom you've crucified, but that God intended to 
to send before we'll, the foundation. We'll of the say world. more about that right there because he goes on there to talk about this Jesus uh, and talks about the work of Jesus, mm-hmm. and there is a theological kind of mystery like this is there. a theological masterclass right mm-hmm. uh, on a number of different topics like yeah. here's one on the sovereignty of god and the responsibility of humans right. so like mm-hmm. he he condemns them for crucifying jesus but yet he also says but god was sovereign over all of it mm-hmm. what you intended According for to evil the definite plan and god intended for good yeah. so like there so i mean then you've got this small little systematic theology but he's doing biblical theology in terms of god's intentions yeah. uh in salvation history for his people you've got him talking about the highest Christology possible, which we've already mentioned briefly from Psalm 110. Again, mm-hmm. Psalm 110 is, begins with this idea that who is David talking about right. if David's son is the Messiah and David is saying there is a Lord next to the Lord. And you say that David's, this gets, I know it gets confusing, but you say that David's son is the Messiah. How could he also call him Lord? And that's what he starts talking about in verse 33, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the father, the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured this out. This is this idea of kind of what we were talking about earlier, this right. parched land and God fulfilling and restoring uh, to Israel his presence. Uh, for David did not ascend into the heavens, but himself said, this is Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Yeah. So now he's doing theology proper. Who is God? Right. Right. He would. He, he's taking this Deuteronomy language of yep. here is the Lord your God is one, right. and now mm-hmm. he's putting a human into mm-hmm. the divine nature in essence yeah. and saying this Jesus whom you crucified yep. is actually Yahweh. Mm-hmm. And we are still monotheists, but we worship the Father and the Son, Jesus. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. I mean, it's just... Like it's, this is a whole biblical theology and a whole systematic theology happening in a sermon. It's crazy. So here's an important note, I think, is how does Peter know how to preach like this, right? Like yeah. you could say, well, it's just the spirit. Like right. the spirit is just, this is the reason that he has. And I, I don't want to diminish that. Sure. But um, we don't see Peter doing like a preaching cohort where he learns how to <laughs> preach. Like we don't, right. we don't know when he develops this apologetic, mm-hmm. except that I think we probably do. Because, of course, he's around for Jesus' whole ministry. And if you think about it, if you were going to sum up this message, first of all, it is a disastrous choice if you're, if you're trying to be seeker-friendly, right? Mm-hmm. Like, they're trying to start a church, basically, whether they could articulate that or not. And his first sermon is this, right? He's like, let's burn the whole place down. Mm-hmm. And yet, when Jesus comes preaching the kingdom, he comes preaching, if you sum up his sermons, it's repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly the summary statement for this sermon here, that's right. which leads me to think when we've always wondered, well, what was it? Did Jesus just stand up and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven? Is it? No, of course not. He was teaching, Mm -hmm. and that's a summary statement for what he was teaching about who he is. And I think what we're seeing here is Peter speaking forth what he had sat, the teaching he sat under Mm -hmm. from Christ himself, and then extending it through the resurrection, the ascension. I love that. I mean, yeah, because you could really say the images, metaphors, what's said implicitly here and explicitly is a summary of the kingdom of God in the Old Testament and all that Jesus came to do. And he's showing that Jesus is the fulfillment of every promise you've ever heard. And what's incredible about this is they they knew all those promises. Mm-hmm. Right? They knew David, they knew the covenants, they knew the sovereignty of God. Like they were f- f- familiar with all of that. Yep. They just hadn't connected it to the person and work of Jesus. Right. Right. And Peter does it for them And verse 37 says, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart mm-hmm. and said to Peter, well, wh- well, then what should we do? And then his message continues, Jen, with exactly what you're saying. Repent. Repent. Yeah. Believe and get baptized. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah. Repent and believe. And uh, I, I think I've mentioned this before, but one of my sweet Presbyterian friends, Melissa Kruger, said to me one time, the message repent and believe is good for both the the lost and the saved person. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the beauty of it here is he's, he's addressing a, like it's a Jewish audience. It's a diverse Jewish audience, but they're gathered for Pentecost. Like mm-hmm. he knows his audience. And, um, and I think that we can hear messages like this and say, this is the way that you, um, you street corner preach. Yeah. Mm. But this is just preaching. Mm-hmm. Preaching calls all who listen to repent and believe. Yeah. And think how that turns on its head so many of our modern notions of what a sermon is. Yeah. I also love too the symmetry between, this is kind of the beginning of Peter's public ministry. Yeah. In the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, his first exhortation was repent mm-hmm. for the kingdom of God is at hand. Mm-hmm. And that Peter, the beginning of his public ministry, first thing he wants to blurt. repent mm-hmm. uh, and be baptized, every one of you. And so he goes on to talk about this in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And he talks about the promises, not just for you and for your children, but it's for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked, crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. There were added to that day about 3,000 souls, which is quite the, quite the outpouring. Yeah, you'd, you'd like that over there at Mosaic, huh? Uh, we, actually, we couldn't handle that. <laughs> yeah, that's what you wish for. From we need space, some more child care. From a, space, from a space perspective, we would be in real trouble, but we would be grateful for it. Um, uh, I, you know, I think one of the things that happens really quickly, because the next scene, Acts 2, 42 through 47, which we're not going to be able to spend all the time we want to on today, but we're going to come back to that this idea mm-hmm. in a couple of episodes, is, okay, Pentecost happens, and yeah. then what do you have? You've got the ideal church. Everything's perfect. Everything, mm-hmm. you got 3,000 people just come to the Lord. Mm-hmm. You've got strong mm-hmm. leadership, and, you know, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread, and they, sh- they were sharing everything, and they were living their life together, and, man, you know, things were just good. And mm-hmm. that's kind of, I think a lot of times when people teach their doctrine of the church, they go back to Acts 2, 42 through 47. But that's a little bit like going to Genesis 1 and 2 and be like, this is how it was supposed to mm-hmm. be, right? It's like, well, things, sin breaks things. Well, and I think what we need to remember is that what we're getting here is a creation narrative. Mm-hmm. So what you're seeing yeah, really is similar to what you see in Genesis. What does it say? It says there's the darkness over the face of the deep and the spirit is hovering. The spirit is waiting to give life. And we see this here. We see the spirit hovering and then giving life. And what's the pronouncement in Genesis at every turn after the spirit gives life? And it was good. And that's what we see, I think, in this little passage here, 42 through 47, is uh, if you if you annotate, and that's what we make them do in this sure. study, all of the everies and the alls and the manys, you know, and the anys and alls, it, what, what's being, this is the benediction. This is, yeah. the, this is the, the benediction on what has just happened, is that, and God said, and it was so, uh, and it was good. Yeah. And, and we're going to come back and talk about this um, because it doesn't stay... Good, good for, for long. long. <laughs> uh, I shouldn't it, laugh. <laughs> I know, but it, things get bad and weird yeah. real fast, real fast. Uh, like in most churches. Um, <laughs> but I think that Acts two is such a profound chapter. Like, if I had to just, if I had to just slice a chapter that I, I could kind of carry with me, so to speak, Acts two is that chapter for me. Uh, yeah, like if you're, if like for example, if if like you're unfamiliar in the waters of the Old Testament and like the storyline and all that's happening, like the grid of Acts chapter two yeah. is like this wonderful lens to have that begins to help you get like some hooks to, yes. to put to put into the Old Testament because Peter's giving you like a Christ-centered theological reading of everything right. in the Old Testament. Yeah.
For more information, you can look into the show notes in the podcast description. We'd be honored for you to leave us a podcast review on iTunes or wherever you find your podcast. You can find us online at trainingthechurch.com. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter by searching Knowing Faith. On our next episode, we're going to jump back into the Apostles' Creed and ask the question, who is Jesus? See you next time. Grace and peace.